I'm Denzel Mohammed, and this is Jobmakers. Refugees enrich the U.S. People who have been through unimaginable tragedy and hardship often know how to be creative and inventive to survive, even in totally foreign lands with totally foreign cultures and languages. Often, as displaced people, they've done it at least once before. For Sunny Vu, embracing diversity, change, and the unknowns of new knowledge was what his parents instilled in him. Their journey to the U.S., leaving under cover of darkness, sailing below deck to a camp in Malaysia, finally to be resettled in Oklahoma City, meant they were survivors, and they embraced the transformational change of life in the U.S., as hard as it was at first. Transformational change is what Sunny is all about today. As a serial entrepreneur and investor, he works across continents to develop new technologies, processes, and products that have what he calls positive planet-level impact. This is impact that makes lives and environments safer and better, which Sonny considers at the core of his faith. And all of this from a guy who studied linguistics, as you'll discover in this week's Jobmakers. Sonny Vu, welcome to Jobmakers. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your current company. I'm working with Arivo. We're an advanced manufacturing technology company based in California and Vietnam. And uh, what we do is we automate the design and manufacturing of carbon fiber composite parts. So if you're not familiar with what composite materials are, they're materials basically that are composed of more than one material. And a carbon fiber reinforced polymer, so what we do, it's a mouthful, is carbon fibers. So these are very strong fiber, super strong. It's an amazingly strong material with polymer or plastic coating, you know, like a matrix that it's in. And that's what makes it solid. Otherwise, it's a fiber. Um, So a a lot of uh, things there, so you can make quite a few things from this material. Typically, it's associated with like high-end bikes or military aircraft or you know, fancy uh, cars will be made out of this material. So it's usually typically uh, kind of a premium material. But using uh, software and robotics and automation, we're able to make it uh, a lot more affordable and um, we can make it a lot faster as well. But by training, you're not an engineer. You you have a degree in Hebrew linguistics. You worked under Noam Chomsky. Uh, right, 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 right. So my back, I'm actually a mathematician by training. Um, and I just happened to like languages, so I worked on a PhD in, in linguistics. But um, but yeah, I, I like science, I like math, and um, anything technology. Um, I do believe um, a lot of human progress can be made through the vertical progress of technology. And, uh, you know, as long as we use it well, you know, I think we're in a good, we can be in a good place. So how did you make that transition from mathematicians, a lover of languages, to your first company was a software company, and then you went into medical yeah. devices and, and well, misfit wearables. How did, how, yeah. tell me about that transition. How is that even humanly yeah, possible? Absolutely. Look, I, I've, I've always loved studying and uh, I miss academia, to be honest. I'd love to go back someday. Uh, but I left my PhD program to start my first company uh, where I was doing software to get computers to understand languages, natural language processing, software technology. 
and we sold that to a, um, a search engine. This is back in gosh, it's a long time ago, 2001. And then um, did that medical device company uh, serving the diabetes community. Uh, we had invented a way to uh, measure blood glucose, glucose in your blood, blood sugar, much faster and uh, more affordably. And so we did that for a number of years. And, and then we did a uh, then we did a wearable technology company uh, that was Misfit. Uh, that was my last company, and we sold that to Fossil Group. And the the whole um, in all of these companies, it was based on some sort of technological or scientific breakthrough, some invention that we made, whether it was getting computers to understand languages or making a diagnostic test more accurate and faster and cheaper, or uh, making a technology shrinking it so that you could wear it on your body, and then for Revo, uh, this time it's uh, making something that's normally very expensive, very valuable because it's super light and strong, but making it a lot faster and cheaper. And so um, I've always really enjoyed deep tech, technology that has some deep scientific basis on it, uh, to it. And um, and so um, it's always been associated with, I, I guess, my curiosity to learn things. So in academics, you get to do it all day long. And uh, in business, I guess, uh, in, in the startup world, I guess, you know, you get the balance running a business as well as learning new things. And guide us through that process of your first company. What you said, a technological breakthrough is the common thread among your companies. But I imagine it must have been really difficult not having the business savvy, not... Oh, yeah. You know, oh, oh, yeah. That was hard. That was hard. I mean, I'd, I'd never, you know, done business before. I was a PhD student, right? And, uh, but I saw a bunch of people do it. I, I saw people, I was kind of roped into uh, the MIT 50K, which is a, 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 well, it's 100K now, I believe, which is an entrepreneurship competition. And I mean, we didn't win, but we, but during that process, it taught us, you know, it, it taught me how to, you know, write a business plan and how to prepare, how to, you know, how to sell things, how to pitch ideas. So I learned a lot doing, doing that. It was a lot of fun. You know, I watched other people do it because they asked me to be kind of like the subject matter expert for a few of these projects and then i said well i could do that that didn't seem so hard and so i gave it a shot and we didn't win but we did get funded and started a company and sold the company so you know i think it was it was okay take us back to your immigrant story you moved to the u.s when you were six years old uh, from vietnam and you moved mm -hmm. to the midwest tell That's our right. viewers your story what prompted that move i know that your father was incarcerated right uh, that's right. That's right. So uh, I was born in Vietnam. My father was um, at, at a at a labor camp for a few years uh, in Vietnam. And after he left, we were able to uh, leave the country. And so we came to the United States, uh, I guess, as refugees um, in 1979. And, you know, I grew up in the U.S. and, uh, you know, had very fond memories of Vietnam as a kid and had always wanted to go back. But I, I largely grew up here. Um, I grew up in the Midwest in Oklahoma City, so we made our life here. And then over the years, and then I, I just fell in love with math and science, and so I went to school and, um, yeah, just never lost that interest. And so, uh, but um, I've always, you know, had a love for my country back in uh, Vietnam, uh, and so we so we actually moved back to Vietnam about uh, six years ago and had been living there for a while. We're back in the United States now just because it's a pretty safe place for COVID uh, reasons, um, but uh, we kind of have a bi you know bicontinental existence between Vietnam and the United States. Guide me through two things. One, I know you were six years old. 
mm. but obvi- and obviously you you took to schooling here really well. But what was that experience like when you first moved here for you and your family? Um, you know, I was a kid, so I had a great time. You know, I, I didn't have to go to school, and you know, Dad took me swimming all the time, so life was pretty good. Um, but it was pretty tough for my parents, obviously, because we had to, you know, leave in the cover of darkness and uh, you know, go into a ship in, uh, down under the, the the deck, and then uh, go to a refugee camp in Malaysia. You know, it's a pretty typical kind of boat person story from the late seventies. There were a lot of us from Vietnam who who came to the United States that way and other countries in the West. <clears throat> um, and so we're not an exception. We're part of that, um, that era. Uh, and so my parents definitely struggled. We came, my parents didn't, I mean, we didn't have any money and started with nothing. So, you know, I'm just grateful that we, one, that we survived, two, that we had an incredible host country, you know, like yeah, we love America. It's a, uh, what a great place to be, you know? And you know, mom worked at uh, Kmart, whatever job she could find. Dad was uh, had to uh, redo his uh, board certification. Fortunately, he was able to get his uh, medical degree uh, to be recognized by the U.S. government. Uh, and so he didn't have to redo medical school. Uh, I mean, he'd been a practicing physician for for for, for a couple of decades. So it wasn't, you know, so he uh, so he just uh, did board. And fortunately, he was able to he knew some English. So that helped as well. So he was able to pass his boards, do residency again. And so in the early years, you know, there was, I think there was definitely some struggle for the family. My brother and I, we didn't, I mean, we're just kids. We didn't know any better. They, they always provided for us. I mean, we lived modestly for a number of years, but uh, we never lacked anything. And I remember you telling me that your father taught you to embrace diversity. Tell me some of the lessons that your parents taught you and how that influenced where you are today. Did they ever... Uh, engender in you an entrepreneurial spirit of any kind? Um, you know, uh, no. <laughs> and uh, but and I would say what they engendered was as a spirit of curiosity more than anything. <clears throat> My dad re- read voraciously and um, was uh, just. You know, I mean, he's a doctor, but he. It's funny. He actually discouraged my brother and I go into medicine because he didn't really think it was a very interesting field, you know, for at least academically. I mean, that's his opinion, obviously. Um, but he, uh, um, you know, the question at home wasn't, was never, what kind of grades did you get? Never. Like my parents, I, I don't ever recall my parents asking what kind of grades we got. But my dad always asking, hey, did you learn about this yet? Or did you learn about that yet? Why didn't they teach you this in school? What do they teach you in school these days? Like, why haven't you learned about blah, 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 you know? And I told him, well, dad, I'm on, I'm in third grade. I'm pretty sure that you don't learn that in third grade, <laughs> you know? And uh, and so I think I remember one time um, I was in uh, world history class and we basically, it was basically European history. I mean, God bless the teacher's heart. She was an amazing teacher, but um you know, uh, the focus really was on Amer- on uh, European history. It was European history with some Amer- a little bit of American history, and then India, China, and Africa. We just read it over the holidays. Those chapters, and I was like, I'm pretty sure those are pretty important <laughs> country, you know, regions of the world. And um, and I remember um, my dad asking, like, why, why don't why don't you learn more about that? Like, well, I can't. It's supposed to be called world history, isn't it? Um, 
And uh, so he he's always like, giving me books to read to supplement what, uh, you know, okay, you should be reading this. I can't believe they haven't give, made you read this yet. Um, so there was a lot of that. So the biggest sin in the, our family was not, you know, getting bad grades or, you know, blowing things up or whatever. They, they gave us lots of uh, freedom. Uh, the biggest sin was not knowing stuff. It was actually just like, why didn't you learn this? Um, yeah. I find that almost atypical of an immigrant family. That Yeah, it's not. It's not typical at all, in fact. And so he actually took me, and, you know, you're talking about Hebrew. So he took me to Hebrew school. And he said, hey, how about this? And I was like, that sounds pretty interesting. I've never heard of Hebrew. What is Hebrew? And, well, there are these people, you know, the Jews. And he gave me a book called Exodus by Leon Uris to read about the founding of the state of Israel. It's an amazing book. Wow. Um, okay, so let's do it. So he actually took me to synagogue as a kid. And we learned uh, Hebrew together. That's where it all got started. So again, atypical that you would, an immigrant family would want to go out of their comfort zone so much. Oh yeah. Oh no, there was no comfort in the house. No, that was, that's for sure. <laughs> I want to bring it into today with this pandemic and vis-a-vis -vis your company. Um, you've previously pointed out that robotics and automation are a key category seeing increased potential acceleration. Um, how has the pandemic impacted your vision for your business going forward when it comes to robotics and animation. The fact that robots yeah. probably can't tran you know, sneeze on each other. No, that's true. That's a good point. Well, certainly automation has, uh, I don't know if it's gotten a boost, but it's uh, definitely gotten a, a second look, you know, now that, you know, we, we don't really want to be in the same buildings with each other unless we have to be more and more. Although, you know, in a post-vaccinated world, things are also changing somewhat back uh, as well. Um, but I would just say that uh, the, the, the larger force, I mean, the pandemic has only accelerated some of these trends, but um, we're drifting towards a multipolar world, you know, um, a less globalized vision than it used to be, where local manufacturing is not just important, uh, just economically, but it's important, like, strategically where supply security is is an issue you know that not everyone wants to make have their stuff made in china anymore you know people want to have stuff made in america people want to have stuff made in germany or wherever you happen to live uh because face it it's pretty inefficient to ship things across huge oceans just because labor is cheaper in different parts of the world right and so we can eliminate that from the um from the consideration and have local manufacturing. How amazing is that, right? Uh, we would love to. So, I mean, that's part of the dream of what's called additive manufacturing or using 3D printing techniques is one of the techniques in additive manufacturing to, to make things just in time. So when you need something, you just hit print and you get your thing. Um, and that trend has been started 35 plus years ago. And now it's finally becoming a thing. It's finally starting to be able to supplant traditional manufacturing techniques. And it's a, it has a great place in the world, especially moving forward, especially in this multipolar world where, you know, trade is more, um, you know, more considered and not as, I wouldn't say it's less free flowing. I mean, trade will continue to flow. Um, but people like to, I mean, if you can make stuff in America, people kind of prefer that. 
And your uh, Alabaster, tell us a little bit about Alabaster and yeah. uh, what what is your version of positive planet level impact? Yeah, so we, um, after our last uh, major exit, it was a great exit. Um, you know, we sold the company, we started it and we sold it within about four years or so, a little less than four years. We uh, we wanted to invest in things that are, um, that could really have a positive planet level impact, as we say, which is things that, you know, it's positive uh, and there's an impact, but it needs to be a planet level impact, meaning really affect a lot of people. You know, I'm not so interested after doing Misfit, which was fun, you know, but I felt like I was basically trying to help rich people lose weight. It's like, you know what, we have other problems in this world that we should probably work on, like, I don't know, the environment or, you know, poverty or, you know, energy. I mean, there's like a lot of really pressing things to work on. So let's work on those. And so Alabaster was uh, founded, our, it's really just our small family office, but we work in conjunction with other um, uh, venture capitalists and uh, uh, venture firms to invest in um, what I would call deep tech. So technology based in some sort of scientific breakthrough or some engineering breakthrough that has the potential for a pretty a needle changing potential for um, a positive impact. And uh, so about 70%, like a, a large majority of it, uh, it was climate change reversal related. So energy, food, um, uh, material, new materials, that kind of stuff. And so it was a lot of fun. I got to learn a lot of, uh, about a lot of different areas. And, um, and so we did that and um, for the last five years, uh, did a, about 35 investments in these different fields in conjunction, in connection with a number of venture firms that were supportive of our mission. And this is a question that I don't get to ask a lot of entrepreneurs, but I was curious as to, you've been very vocal about your Christian faith. And I was wondering how, what impact does faith have in you as an in, as an entrepreneur? You know, um, we have to ask ourselves why we do things, you know, and um, uh, at the end of the day, uh, is it like, why do we, why should we care about the environment? Why should we care about our fellow man? And why not look for, look out for number one? And, um, you know, I, I just, I have to say that uh, for me, the Bible kind of outlines, uh, gives a pretty clear outline on how to do what I think is the most, one of the most important things we can do. And that is to love, you know, um, uh, to do things with great love. I mean, that's, uh, and um, if we can succeed in doing that, I think, you know, I think we're, we're pretty far ahead, you know, and I feel like this is a world that uh, often lacks in that in a lot of ways. And so, um, um yeah, so for me, faith provides the why, you know, and uh, and is the nexus of meaning for why I do things, you know, and that's you know to glorify God, you know, and to <laughs> and that's what we're created for. So that's that's I mean, if you dug to the core, that's why. Uh, but then again, you know, faith without works is dead, right? So if you do things and you just talk about it, you know, it's not so interesting. But if you can actually serve your fellow man and make food more plentiful and cheaper, energy cheaper and clean up the environment, you know, technologies that make a lot of money and make a cleaner world, more sustainable world. I mean, how awesome is that? That's, that's living out your faith, man. That's, that's what, that's, uh, that's exciting. You know, I, I'd sign up for that. Um, yeah. And I mean, the name Alabaster comes from, you know, my favorite story in the Bible uh, where, um, you know, a 
a, 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 a poor and sinful woman uh, washes, breaks a, an alabaster jar, an alabaster tub of stone uh, of perfume over uh, to Jesus' head and, and uh, you know, basically bathes him in this very expensive uh, perfume that she saved up as a uh, symbol of worship as an act of worship to him. And I just thought it was a beautiful story. And I kind of feel like that's what we do at Alabaster. And that is to pour ourselves out. And arguably you've been doing God's work um, throughout the years by creating meaningful work and jobs for people, uh, improving right. livelihoods, uh, creating new technologies and products. So, uh, you know, really on behalf of America, I want to thank you uh, for the work that you've done. You've really added value and I hope that this message, this, this idea of immigrants and their entrepreneurial spirit, their job creation, their innovation really spreads. Jobmakers is a weekly podcast about immigrant entrepreneurs produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Thank you for joining us for this week's inspiring story of another immigrant entrepreneur. If you know someone we should talk to, email Denzil, that's D-E-N-Z-I-L, at jobmakerspodcast.org. Leave us a review on your favorite streaming service, too. I'm Denzil Mohammed. Join us next Thursday at noon for another Jobmakers Podcast.